Good morning, my friends. I, uh, I want to invite you, like always, to gather around God's Word. We're working our way through Matthew's Gospel, and we're currently in the 12th chapter. And last week, we were together in the 12th chapter, just an earlier portion of it, and we saw a conflict begin to arise between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, and the conflict was about the Sabbath. And what happened was that the disciples were were walking down the road. They were heading towards the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as they were walking down the road, Jesus' disciples reached out and they grabbed some grain to eat that was just kind of there on the side of the road and they began eating it. And that was, that was taboo for the Pharisees because picking grain, just the act of picking it, was considered working. And God had, had instructed His people not to work on the Sabbath. And so this conflict arose between Jesus and the religious leaders specifically about what is work, and how do you honor God on the Sabbath? And, and I, if, you, if you're interested in that, go listen. But eventually what happens, they arrive at the synagogue, which was their destination, and they go inside. And when they get inside, there's a man there who has a, what Scripture defines as a withered, withered hand. And uh, I think you know what Jesus is going to do. He does it everywhere he goes. He, he heals people. And in, in, in doing so, Jesus demonstrates that he is both compassionate but that he's also legitimate, right? So many of the miracles of Jesus, they just, they serve to prove his legitimacy. Uh, and, and I just want to make sure that you understand that. that the, the, the reason that Jesus continues to do miracles is, is for two reasons. On the one hand, he's just got great compassion for his people. But on the other hand, these miracles that we just keep seeing over and over again, they are proof that Jesus is from God. And, and that's going to be so important with what we're talking about today, that you understand that. And, and the observation from last week's story was this, that, that the Pharisees were kind of trying to trick Jesus in a way. Look at verse 10. Uh, as we read this last week, it says this. And a man was there with a, with a withered hand. And they asked him, this is, this is kind of the trick, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? You see, the Pharisees believed that um, you could only help someone on the Sabbath if they were dying and, and obviously this man with the withered hand wasn't dying from a withered hand. But, but here's what's interesting in, in, in saying all this. The Pharisees knew, and you could tell by the context of the story, they knew that, that Jesus had the power to heal this man. They, they never once stopped to question Jesus' miraculous power. But rather, they, they, they're trying to trick Jesus into kind of healing this man so that they can accuse him of breaking Sabbath law. So just wrap your head around that. The Pharisees are at war with a man who they know can do the miraculous. And, and the miracles, their whole purpose is to show the Jewish people that Jesus is from God. And even though that the Pharisees can see Jesus' miracles, they refuse to believe in him. But yet, the Pharisees don't attribute the work of Jesus to a to a parlor trick, right? They, they know that somehow it's supernatural, but still they don't believe in him. And, and last week we were together, the last, last verse that we read last week was verse 14, and this is what it says. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. So it's, it's just making them so angry that he has this power, and we know that this only ends one way, and that way is on the cross. And so in today's reading, we're going to read another story about Jesus, and Jesus is going to do another miraculous healing, and then we're going to get into some very interesting topics this week 
Today's sermon is entitled, Demons, the Devil, and Unforgivable Sin. So, uh, Demons, the Devil, and Unforgivable Sin. So, yeah, this is really, really basically a bubblegum sermon this morning. Um, if, if you can't stay awake for this this morning, you might need to visit your doctor, you know. Um, isn't it fun just to read text together? Um, well, let's discuss this stuff this morning. Before we do, let's read the text. We're going to be reading Matthew 12, 15 through 32. So if you'd stand with me as we read. And before we read, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, as we approach your infallible and inerrant holy word, we pray that your spirit would quicken our hearts, that we would understand. We pray that, that you would bring conviction through this word, inspiration, faithfulness. You would, you would allow it to do its work in us, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all the church said, amen. Beginning in first vift, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant who I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then... A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Uh, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Our reading this morning, it picks up right after we find out that the Pharisees, like we read earlier, have set out to destroy Jesus. And verse 15 says that, that Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. Uh, here's the deal. The Pharisees are mad at Jesus. And why are they mad at Jesus? For a couple reasons. Last week we read that he claimed to be the Son of Man, which is 
the, the great king prophesied in Daniel. And also because Jesus was doing these, these healings on the, the day of the Sabbath. And so, so Jesus leaves the synagogue, and, and what happens? Verse 15 says this. It says that a crowd of people followed Jesus out of the synagogue, and, and, and it says that Jesus healed every one of them. And, and I guess it makes sense. Like if you have an ailment, if you've got some sort of chronic pain, tell me you're not following the man who you just witnessed do an undeniable miraculous healing. I mean, of course you are. You're going to say something like, Jesus, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. I saw what you did with the withered hand. Can you take care of my tennis elbow? I mean, that's kind of the way that, that people are going to be. And, and I don't know uh, if you've noticed this, but Jesus lately, and as we read through Matthew's gospel, he is not stingy with his healings. And so this, this whole crowd of people leave uh, the synagogue with Jesus on the Sabbath, and Jesus is like the Oprah Winfrey of healings. He's like, you get a healing on the Sabbath, and you get a healing on the Sabbath. He's just healing everybody. And uh, I'll try to come back at a, at a later time and address that Isaiah prophecy that we read in the future. But what I want to do is, is, is link up with this next healing story. Verse 22 says this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. So here are the demons that I promised you today. The Scripture tells us that this man was demon-oppressed, and I, I believe that we're to assume that, that, that the demon oppression is the reason that this man cannot see or speak. Now, this verse is not long. It's quick. Uh, it happens very fast. Matthew does not waste a lot of words. Uh, basically, we find out that a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus, and then Jesus just heals him, and now the man can see and he can speak. But obviously, it's, something amazing has happened, and, and, and we know how amazing it is by the reaction of the crowd. Look at verse 23. It says this, And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? This is a miracle of Jesus, and it's undeniable. And the crowd of Jews is beginning to come to the realization, uh, wait, can it be? It, is this the Messiah? Could this be the son of, of David? And, and, and you begin to see it. It's like something is turning over in their head. They're beginning to think that maybe he is who he says he is. How else can you explain the supernatural? How else does the impossible happen? Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, this is what they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You see, the crowd was beginning to turn towards Jesus because the only thing that explained his supernatural power is that he's the Messiah. However, the Pharisees offer a different explanation. And, and by the way, I'm just going to say this again because I think it's just amazing the Pharisees don't deny that Jesus is doing miraculous works. They don't. They don't accuse him of parlor tricks. There, there are too many witnesses. There is too much evidence, and there are too many miracles. One of the greatest testimonies that Jesus is God is that his enemies don't even deny the fact that he is supernatural. Instead, the way the Pharisees attack Jesus is they attribute his supernatural power to another source. Like, here's my example for you. This is all I could say. If some phony prophet came into Lakeside doing some supposed miracles, we're probably going to start our critique of that phony by trying to disprove their miracles. 
right? We're going we're gonna to watch his hands to see if he's got cards up his sleeves. We're going we're gonna to follow up and do research on the person who he's healed to see if they were ever really sick to begin with or if they were just some charlatan, right? That's how we're going to do this. You don't start by saying, yeah, the guy is a miracle worker, but his power comes from an evil source. You don't start there. There are more logical arguments unless there are simply no ways to disprove what Jesus is really doing. The Pharisees are forced then to accuse Jesus of casting out this demon by the power of Beelzebub, which is a common name for, uh, or maybe a moniker for the devil. It's actually an old Canaanite word that means, this is interesting, Lord of the Flies. Right? This kind of troubling. Uh, it refers back to the Canaanite god Baal, but, but some, somewhere along the line it became a moniker for the devil, okay? So the argument of the Pharisees is this. Jesus is fighting these demons with the power of the devil. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Basically, the summation of Jesus saying is, is, is that their thinking is just foolish. He, he begins to tell them that there's, there's two spiritual kingdoms that exist. There is the kingdom of heaven on one side, and there is the kingdom of the devil on the other side. And, and basically, those two kingdoms are at war. Uh, the demons work for the devil, and Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And the idea that Jesus is working for the, the devil to destroy demons is ludicrous because the devil would not destroy his own work. It was the work of the devil that made this man blind and mute to begin with. How then would the devil want to come in and undo his own kingdom work? Verse 26, it says this, And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? I think the, the Pharisees are grasping at straws to explain how Jesus has this authority. I, listen, I honestly think they know the truth, but they still refuse to, to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Now, now, the Jewish historian Josephus, he, he's actually a Roman man, but he does Jewish history. He says that there were some disciples of the Pharisees. Like Everyone's got their own disciples. Jesus has disciples. John the Baptist has disciples. And the Pharisees actually have disciples. But these disciples of the Pharisees were known to be casting out demons also. So it's not just Jesus who is casting out demons, but, but also these uh, what is called in Scripture here, sons of the Pharisees, were also doing this work of casting out demons. Look at verse 27. We'll read that together. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? See that? Jesus is putting them back to the Pharisees. He's like, you, your sons are doing this work also, too. your disciples are. Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus is basically saying, listen, bring your disciples who cast out demons also, bring them over here, and you ask them how this works. You ask them how they cast out demons. They don't do it by the power of the devil. That's not how any of this works. They will be your judge if you ask them how it works. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There are only two options here. The Pharisees know this, and, and, and Jesus knows this. If Jesus' power is not from the devil, then where is it from? 
Only one option remains. That is that the kingdom of God has come upon them, and Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to switch to another illustration here. It's a good illustration. Verse 29 says this, or, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house? So let me ask you a question. In this uh, illustration, who is the strong man? And what does this illustration mean? Let's explore the illustration in context. The issue is, by what power, because this is what we're talking about here. This is what Jesus is trying to answer. By what power did Jesus heal the demon-possessed man? The, The demon is an agent of the devil, and the demon had come into the man, had come inside the man, and had taken up residence. And the result was complete physical and emotional havoc in this man. And so, so let me play my cards here. The devil is the strong man in the story. Okay, you got that? You know who the strong man is? It's the devil. His kingdom had come, had, had taken up residence in this possessed man. And, and, and the intruder in the story then is who? The intruder in the story is Jesus, right? Jesus first had to come into this, this demon-possessed man, and, and he had to subdue the strong man, who's who? The devil, before he could plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I'm not doing this with the power of Beelzebub. He had taken residence in this man, so I broke in, and I overpowered Satan that I might plunder his house. This healing is Jesus overpowering Satan, the strong man, and plundering his house. Now, let me say uh, just a few things about the devil and about demons, okay? I don't know how you feel about the devil and about demons. I know it's not popular to believe in demons. I know it's not popular to attribute bad things to them. I know know we're not supposed to look at uh, people who have psychiatric orders and say that's demonic. I mean, that that really, that feels to us taboo to say things like that or, or maybe thoughtless in today's setting, but, but I, I can say this, looking at Scripture with you today, Jesus believes in them, right? And I don't know if you believe that, that demons cause mental and physical chaos, but Jesus sure seemed to think that they did that. Look at Ephesians 2, um, 1 through 2, because I think it's, it's pertinent, and I'll, I'll make it make sense later. This is Paul. He says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, like, guys, you were once too dead in your sins, and you followed the way of this world. And, and not just that, he didn't stop at the way of this world. He says, you followed the way of the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air. Listen, that's another moniker, that's another name for the devil. You once followed the devil. Now, I think the same could probably be said for all of you in here. I, I, don't, I don't think you probably had any satanic seances. That's weird, I hope you didn't. Um, I, I hope you weren't saying prayers to Satan, but, but the truth is you probably walked in his ways. And, and, and what Paul goes on to say more, he says, Satan's spirit is still at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, now keep reading Ephesians 2 with me. We're going to go just a little bit further. We're going to read verses 4 through 5. Ready? Here it goes. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Uh, so, so this is great. Let me, let me tell you what this means. The strong man had laid claim to you, and you were dead in your sins. And Jesus broke into your life, and he subdued the strong man, and he plundered you. Isn't that good news? And it, it wasn't because you were good, and it wasn't because you deserved it, but because God is gracious. Isn't that amazing? I hope you see how amazing that is. And I, uh, I, had, to, I had to get on a side note for that just a little while. So back to our story. Jesus says, uh, I don't work for Satan. I left him subdued in the corner, uh, and, and I healed this man. And, and, and Jesus says this, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's what that means. It means that there is no room for being neutral when it comes to Jesus. That's what Jesus wants the crowd. That's what he wants the Pharisees to know. Either you are with me or you are against me. Either you proclaim the lordship of Jesus and you take his yoke upon you and you profess your faith in him or you continue to be of the kingdom of evil. This is what you can't do. You can't just say that Jesus is a good man and not the Messiah and, and hope to have peace with him. In the same way, listen, and this is important, you can't just call yourself a follower of Jesus and come to church once a quarter and kind of do the Christian thing and not submit your life to him and sit on the fence. What, is, what does Jesus say in, in his word about being lukewarm? He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And again, there's only two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Satan. If Jesus is your Lord, you are in the kingdom of heaven. And if he is not your Lord, where are you? You're left in the kingdom of Satan. And that brings us today, this morning, to one of the more controversial passages of Scripture. This idea that if you've been in the church long enough, you've, you've heard people pontificate about what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And is it truly unforgivable? Well, let's look at some text together this morning, verses 31 through 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Spirit, excuse me, against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So let's, let's break this down. The fir first thing that Jesus says is this. Every, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. And, and I don't think we need to quickly pass over that idea. I think it's really important. Jesus speaks to the depth of God's forgiveness. That's where he starts. Every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven. And that's really amazing news for you. And we see it throughout the passages of Scripture. David was, was a murderer. Moses was a murderer. And yet God forgave them. In, in Psalm 32, 5, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Right? I mean, we see this, this pattern of confession and, and forgiveness. We see that Peter denied Jesus three times, and yet Jesus forgave Peter and restored Peter. What about 
this idea of blasphemy. Let's, uh, let's, let's get a working definition of what blasphemy is, okay? Because I, I think that'll be important to us. And, and just for the sake of it, I'm going to go with John MacArthur's definition of blasphemy. Here's what he says. He says, blasphemy is the unique sin of speaking evil against God or saying things about God that are not true or speaking of God in a derogatory manner. That's blasphemy, right? It's, it, it, it's a defiant irreverence. So my question is this. Is blasphemy unforgivable? No. Blasphemy is not unforgivable. Look what Paul says about himself in blasphemy and his forgiveness from blasphemy in 1 Timothy uh, 1.13. He says this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Okay, all right, so, so here's the question. Stop right there. Keep that up if you can. Why did Paul receive mercy other than God's a gracious God and, and, a, and a forgiving God? What does it say here? Because he, he blasphemed in what? In ignorance and unbelief, right? Paul basically says, I, I didn't know who Jesus was. I, I thought I did. But I didn't know. I, I was wrong. Once Paul realized Jesus was Lord, he served him his whole life, right? We, we, we talk about that. We've seen the road to Damascus. Paul insulted and spoke evil of Jesus in ignorance. But once Paul knew who Jesus was, Paul repented. And Paul was forgiven. Paul seems to understand, and, and I'm just going to go back and say this, that the condition for his forgiveness of blasphemy was ignorance. Like, I, I didn't know. I wouldn't have said it. I didn't know. So if we were to, like if you were to invert that logic, we might say then, what is the condition to not be forgiven of blasphemy? What is the opposite of ignorance and unbelief? The opposite of, of ignorance and unbelief is, is like knowledge and assurance. Knowledge and assurance of what? Okay, okay, knowledge and assurance of who God in Christ truly is. Like if you have a knowledge in your heart of, of, of who God in Christ truly is, and then you blaspheme, then what? So, so Paul says he's forgiven because of his ignorance and unbelief, but what would happen if someone had a full knowledge of God in Christ, and yet they spoke evil of Christ? You see, in our story today, what Jesus does not do is he does not accuse the Pharisees of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think some people are, are mistaken there. He doesn't accuse them of it. He doesn't say, you guys are guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No. Jesus simply warns them that those who commit this sin will not find God's forgiveness. And, and remember the context. Just remember the context. Let's grab it together. Jesus is revealing over and over who he is to the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees are moving closer and closer to the point where they can no longer claim that they have ignorance and unbelief, right? It's, it's like there's this point, and I don't know where the point is, but there's this point where God says, I've shown you who I am. You have all this unique knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus has been before you. He's been doing these miracles, the, these things that are impossible. In your heart, you even know who he is, but you still reject him, and you attribute his works to, to evil, and you blaspheme him. So, so let me say this to clarify. God's forgiveness is conditional. Did you know this? 
if we do not think, if you do not think that God's forgiveness is conditional, then what would happen is that we would become, or you would become, a universalist. Now, a universalist believes that, uh, that God is going to save everyone without condition. Just the whole world will be saved. Um, but we know this, then Scripture seems to be clear that there are those who will not find salvation, and therefore, by logic, we can say that God's forgiveness is conditional. So what, then, is the condition for God's forgiveness? You must repent and believe. 1 John 1, 8 through 9, let's read it together. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? We, we begin to see the conditions there. Forgiveness is to confess our sins. Back to this idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this idea that someone has a certain full amount of revelation and knowledge of God. They know in their heart fully, fully who Jesus is, and yet knowing who Jesus is, they intentionally blaspheme him anyway. And they refuse to repent and to believe in him. And thus, they miss out on the forgiveness of God because they fail to meet the conditions of forgiveness, which are repentance and belief. And so I think it's important that you understand this, that it's not that God says, hey, you insulted my son, I'm going to punish you with hell. Rather, it's that the person had a full revelation and knowledge of Jesus, and yet they refused to acknowledge what they need to be true, and they did not meet the conditions for forgiveness. And so here's what I'm going to say, you know, what a full teaching we had in Matthew today. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man. His supernatural works are clearly on display, and yet the Pharisees still harden their heart, and they still attribute the work of God to Satan. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and really, there are debates about whether it can be something which Christians today can even commit. You ever thought about that? Like, like there, are, there are debates about whether blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that Christians today can even commit. And, and let me shed some light on that. Uh, many commentators would say that like the Apostle Paul, many of us are more than capable of the sin of blasphemy. And you are. We are. We all are. And, and it's an evil sin. But like Paul, we should hope to find forgiveness of our blasphemy because we have committed that blasphemy with some degree of ignorance and unbelief, okay? As opposed to these Pharisees who are standing with the incarnate Jesus watching his glory on display and observing hundreds and hundreds of miraculous healings, we are asked to put our faith instead to some degree of practice. Our faith functions, your faith functions with such, some degree of, of, of ignorance. So let me end by saying this. If you have a willing spirit to repent for your sin and to turn to Jesus as Lord, you will find that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven, even the worst of them. I believe the only unforgivable sin is produced in the hearts of those who refuse to meet the conditions of forgiveness. So this morning, I want to implore you, implore you all to repent and to believe in Jesus 
and to rest in the assurance of his generous forgiveness. Thanks be to God. Can we pray together this morning? Father, uh, what a joy it is to read of, of Jesus and his glory on such display, doing these miraculous healings, showing such com compassion for people. And he does give these Pharisees a warning, Lord. Uh, the warning is that uh, uh, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And God, our, our prayer for ourselves and for, for others around us is that as your Spirit makes known who you are to us, Father, that we would repent and, and, and proclaim you as Lord. God, will you fill us with an assurance of our salvation this morning? If there's someone in this room who, who fears that maybe they have committed some sin that is unforgivable, will you reassure their spirit that the very fact that they love you and desire forgiveness is proof in and of itself that your spirit works in their hearts and that they have been redeemed for your purposes. Father, will you draw us all to repentance this morning and leave here and leave us here with an assurance of your great grace. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and the church said, amen.